the Ascension. We read in the Gospel of St. John the, the wonderful words of our Lord who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, I will explain the slide in a minute, so just give me a second before we get into uh, what you're seeing on the screen there. The Gospel uh, of St. John um, that we read from is from the 14th chapter, which is the chapter um, that comes to us in the evening of Holy Thursday before the Passion of the Lord on Friday. And we see in this reading that the disciples are full of confusion, uncertainty, anxiety, and fear. And the Lord wants to comfort them. And so he says to them, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And further in the chapter, in the same chapter, he will repeat those same words, but he will add something very important. He will say, let not your heart be trouble, troubled, neither let it be neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said, I am going to the Father. These words are very important. The Lord says, if you loved me, you would rejoice. So here he is speaking to them and to us in the midst of our difficult times, in the midst of our trials and sorrows. He says to us, if you love me, then you will rejoice. So the command to rejoice is not something that we wait passively for, but as we'll see, it's something that we choose and something that's commanded of us as a sign of our love for God. So Jesus says in the gospel today that he is one with the Father, and at the same time, he is one with us. The Father is no longer a mystery to the disciples, and, he, and God is no longer a mystery to us because we have come to know God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so the disciples are still trying to figure out how can we know the Father and how can we be in a relationship with the Father. And Jesus tells them very simply, you are already in a relationship with God. You are at this moment, he says to them, in a relationship with God. Don't be anxious. And they might respond and say, but Lord, our faith is not yet perfect. We are sinners. We are weak. We're confused. We don't understand everything. And he will say to them, but you are now in a relationship with God. Yes, the relationship will continue to mature and grow, but you are in a relationship with God because you know me, you have seen me, you have come to believe in me. So the same thing the Lord says to all of us. Our faith might not yet be perfect. Perhaps we have not overcome many of our sinful struggles. Perhaps we cling to certain attachments. But nonetheless, he says to us, you are in a relationship with me. Don't be anxious, just keep going. Keep looking at me, keep understanding me, believing in me, and loving me. And he says, again, to repeat, if you loved me, you would rejoice. The command that he gives to his disciples and to all of us. So we have no excuse, even in the midst of difficulties, to not be joyful because of our relationship with God. St. Therese says, I always find a way to be happy. And her life was full of sadness and disease and pain and darkness. And another nun wrote in a letter, she said, this is how we spend our life, praying, working, and smiling. Praying, working, and smiling. So the Christian is one who finds a way to be joyful, who we can call it an asceticism of joy, a struggle for joy. And when we give ourselves to God and we trust that we are in a relationship with God, as imperfect as it is, then joy can be a fruit of our faith. Joy is a fruit of believing and trusting in that relationship that we have with God. 
On the contrary, if we're constantly sad and, and depressed and full of despair, then there's a certain lukewarmness to our faith. There's a certain egoism that's creeping forth, refusing to accept our spiritual poverty. And so some of the saints, they teach us how to be joyful in the midst of sorrows. They teach us how to find joy in sadness, which brings me to a saint that I've spoken to you about a number of times, but I want to go into a little bit more about his life this morning with you. Marcel Vaughn, a Vietnamese confessor and martyr who died at a very young age of 31 years old uh, when the communists overtook North Vietnam. And his life is a tremendous witness not only of uh, fortitude and courage and love, but also that he was granted a special grace from God that Jesus began to speak to him and to give him uh, many, many years of conversation that his spiritual father had him write down. And these conversations were recorded in a book uh, quite uh, voluminous in terms of its quantity and beautiful. And uh, I'll say more about the authenticity of it. Um, but on the screen you see uh, a short sort of um, panoramic of his life from his childhood. Um, and something very interesting that I experienced myself was that having grown to love this saint and read much about him, I discovered that his sister, his sister you see is that small, in that small black and white picture on the right, you see Marcel standing with his little sister. His little sister became a, a nun and um, the order that they belonged to, both Marcel and his sister, was called the Redemptorist Order. They originated, or the ones who were in charge of the order in Vietnam were actually originally from Quebec, Canada. So after communism began to spread in Vietnam, many of the, the, the Christians fled. Eventually, uh, Marcel's sister went to Canada and she lived her whole life really in seclusion in an isolated monastery in Quebec, Canada. In 2019, I was invited to uh, Montreal to give a, a retreat for the youth, our youth, Coptic youth there. And I discovered that where I was going to be staying was not very far from where I heard many, many, many years ago she was a, a nun. And I didn't know if she was still alive or not, but I, I asked one of our Coptic priests who, because they live in Montreal, they speak fluent French. So I said, look, I think there's this monastery. I got the contact information. I want to track down this nun. And if she's there, I want to get permission to go see her. And, um, and he did. He called and they said, yes, she's here. And, but nobody knows about her. He was, they were surprised the Coptic priest is inquiring. He said, well, I have this priest coming from California. He really wants to meet her. Can he come? So we went. And we spent like, I don't know, two hours with them. And she, as you can see in the picture, she's very elderly now. I don't know. As a matter of fact, right now, if she's still alive, if she is, may God give her long life. But the experience was a, a huge grace for me personally because she came and she was so excited. She brought out old photo albums of her and her brother, the saint, who's being canonized now. And she told stories. Of course, it was all in French, but Father Abuna Krolos Murad, who was a good friend and, and wonderful, beloved priest in Montreal, he was... Um, translating. And even at times, you know, they would talk back and forth for like 10 minutes. And I'm like, what did she say? What did she say? And he'd be like, give me like a one sentence summary. I'm like, no, that's not what. 
And then I would, sometimes one of the would start crying from being touched by something that she said. Anyways, I have it recorded, so if any of you speak fluent French, you're welcome to the recording. But I snuck uh, some pictures, and you, you see I, I snuck a picture of me taking a blessing, uh, giving her a kiss on her cheek. It was a, a wonderful experience to meet somebody whose younger brother was uh, a martyr and being canonized as a saint. Um, so I want to say a little bit more about his life and his mission. He said, God entrusted me with a mission. What was his mission? He said, changing suffering into happiness, drawing its strength from love, my life from now on will only be a fountain of happiness. So as I said, he was born in um, uh, 1928, uh, and he died in 1959 at the age of 31 years old in a communist prison camp in North Vietnam. As a child, very young, even in his, when he was four, five, six years old, he had a great desire, he would tell his mom, to be a priest and to be a saint. At the age of seven, his mom took him to what was like a parochial, parochial school that was for like um, church um, children learning the faith catechism and perhaps pre preparing them for future seminary life. But when he was there, he, he faced a lot of problems. He was an, sort of an ideal student. He was burning with love for God even at such a young age. And many of his classmates made fun of him, and they were very cruel because of their jealousy and because of how well he was doing among his peers. And so he was subject to a lot of physical beatings and even mental cruelty. And um, one of the adults, the catechists, the ones who were supposed to be in charge of protecting him, um, also became very um, envious and jealous of the attention that little Marcel was getting. And he began to beat him and also to refuse to give him Holy Communion um, unless he uh, was deprived of food and, and other essentials. So Marcel was, was suffering as a young child, and he ran away from his from this place which was supposed to be an environment of church and education and holiness. And when he was eight years old, two typhoons struck the area where his family lived and put them in a deep famine. His dad was so distraught that his dad began, began drinking and gambling, and so even the little livelihood that they had was wasted. So little Van had to go and work as a, as a child servant in homes, as a slave, basically. And... In those days, to work in such an occupation was not protected by any labor laws, as you can imagine. And so he suffered greatly at the hands of those who took advantage of his age and the free or the minimal um, cost of his service. So again, he would run away, but he didn't know where to go. Because when he would go home, they thought he was ashamed to his family that he must have ran away because he did something wrong. And he would, they wouldn't necessarily believe that he was being beaten and, and, and hurt. So many times he had to live in the streets as an eight, nine-year-old kid. He was living in the streets. And um, in 1940, in Christmas, now again, 1940, he's only 12 years old, he has this ama amazing experience of God. And he says, in his own words, he says, uh, one of his writings is an autobiography. So he has the autobiography. He has another volume of his conversations with the Lord another uh, of his letters, and another of his poetry, four massive volumes that he left uh, through his spiritual father. 
So he says on Christmas, when he's 12 years old, he says, the moment of communion arrived, I embraced Jesus in my heart. I am seized with immense joy. Why do my sufferings all of a sudden seem so beautiful to me? It's impossible to say. In an instant, my soul was transformed. I was no longer afraid of suffering. God entrusted with me with a mission that night, changing suffering into happiness, drawing its strength from love from my... My life from now on will only be a fountain of happiness. This grace was not an illusion. Though he continued to suffer throughout his life, he was also an example of great joy and happiness. In 1944, he was accepted at a very young age to be a brother in the Redemptress Monastery in in Hanoi. Uh, But because of his age and his small stature, they didn't want to let him in for a number of years. So he was living sort of in the barn with the animals as a servant there for a number of years before they finally, seeing his, his faithfulness, allowed him to be a brother, but they would never ordain him even a priest. And it was around this time that his conversations with Jesus began. Jesus began to speak to him, and his spiritual father began to tell him, out of obedience, he had to write down all of these conversations. Now, some of the theologians, of course, when, they, when you canonize somebody, you look at these things, and one of the theologians says the message that little Van transmits to us is of theological and spiritual accuracy which far surpasses his own intellectual knowledge. In other words, when you read the conversations between him and the Lord, what he says in those conversations far surpasses and is so theologically accurate that it couldn't have possibly come from him based on his own education. So that's one of the signs that the, the, the Western Church felt that these were authentic. And uh, his spiritual father um, said at the heart of his message was this unbounded confidence in him who is perfect love and in the beloved Jesus Christ. His spiritual father said, and there's a beautiful interview of his spiritual father who was a very elderly priest and uh, when he was dying in France, or in uh, Quebec, sorry. Um, and he's telling about how he uh, was the spiritual father of this young man. And he's weeping as he's telling about how his life was transformed by being in contact with a spiritual child uh, like Marcel Vaughan. So he said, I admit humbly that Brother Marcel taught me much more about the spiritual life than I was able to teach him. What What a tremendous grace as a spiritual father to be able to say that I was able to learn much more from this young disciple than I was ever able to teach him myself. And Jesus began to tell him that he would die young, that he would sacrifice himself, and that he would not live to be, um, you know, past his youth. And so in 1949, this is now some years before he, was, he died in the prison camp, he said, who can know the power of love? Who can know the sweetness? There will come a day when I will die, but I will die consumed by love. He knew that he would die young, Jesus told him that, but he knew that it would, he would be an example and he would be... Uh, an image of perfect love. So in one of the dialogues, I will share a couple of the dialogues because Marcel was very simple. He was a very, very simple and at times even very naive young man. And there's a lot of humor in the conversations because of how simple Marcel was. So Marcel, you know, as a young uh, brother in the monastery, he was still very youthful and he wanted to play. He didn't always want to go to prayers. And so he loved... um, the Holy Innocents, you know, the Holy Innocents, the children who were martyred by Herod when, when they tried to find the child Jesus. So Marcel says to the Lord in one of the conversations, says, Jesus, today is the feast day of the Holy Innocents. 
I wonder if in heaven these little saints are mischievous like children. They must without doubt spend all their day playing with you. When I go to heaven, it is absolutely essential that I ask you to admit me to their ranks. Jesus responds to him saying, You speak without understanding anything of what you are saying. Listen carefully to me. In the same way that the holy innocents had to suffer death for me, you also have to die for my love. Because of this, you will be admitted to their ranks. In 1946, he wrote to his sister, all of these the quotes are letters to his sister, Sister Anne-Marie that is in the picture. In 1946, he wrote to her, I know with certainty that I will die young. Jesus wishes it to be so. Again, in 1947, to his cousin, he writes, As I love Jesus, I do not make a distinction between joy and suffering. I love Jesus solely for himself. And even if I must die immersed in sadness and bitterness, I cheerfully accept it remaining intimately united to the love of Jesus until the end. And the Lord says to him something very touching. He tells him that at the end, when, he's in, when he dies, that he will experience a lot of loneliness, that in those days he will not be appearing to him and speaking to him as he was in those days that he was giving him this, 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 these messages. And so Jesus says to him, he says, I have not left you yet. I have not left you yet. It sounds like the words that Jesus said to the disciples in the gospel today. I have not left you yet. Besides, the separation will be more painful for me than for you because I have more compassion for you than you have love for me. What a profound saying. Jesus says, the separation will be more painful for me because my compassion for you is greater than your love for me. Therefore, that separation will be more painful for me. So as I said, his mission, turning sadness into joy, he says again, you see that in this world, joy without tears is also sadness, and sadness without joy is even more unbearable. As a result, if we do not know how to change sadness into joy and to offer this joy to God, our life will be so burdened under the weight of sadness that our soul will lose all interest in the spiritual life. So he admits that sadness and tears are part of life, but he says, but they have to be accompanied by this seeking of joy. Again, in 1950, he wrote to his sister, you have learned that he who knows how to love experiences also joy and sadness. An ardent love means an intimate and solid love which lasts always, a love that is impossible to allow to fall. A strong love is one that does not rely on feeling. Consequently, if one is joyful or sad, one perseveres always in love. A strong love which accepts with courage the sadness and the sufferings which will present themselves so as to prove to him that your love for him is an ardent love, a faithful love, which does not change according to sadness or joy. So he basically says, it doesn't matter if I'm happy or if I'm sad, but in both cases, I continue to love. In 1954, North Vietnam was taken over by the communists and all of the Christians, there was a mass exodus from the north to the south. And the monastery actually in which Marcel belonged to they all left, and he left with them. But he went to his superiors and he said, allow me to remain in the north. They said to him, why would you remain in the north where you're going to be captured by the communists? He said, there must be at least one person. Think, listen, to, listen to what his rationale is. He said, there must be at least one person among the communists who loves God. There must be at least one person among the communists who loves God. And they let him stay in the north. In 1955, 
after he was imprisoned because it was just a matter of time that they caught him, he was... Um, he said in a letter, in prison, nothing can deprive me of the weapon of love. He was sentenced to 15 years of, of uh, imprisonment. And then in 1957, he was trying to sneak into the other Christian cell, uh, cellmates, Holy Communion. And they caught him and they confined him to solitary confinement in chains, iron chains. During this time, his faith there were many who survived that knew him in the prison camp. And when they came out, they told stories about how his faith shone very brightly among them, how he was ministering to the others. Again, he's very young. And he was radiant with faith and with love. Eventually, from the tortures, the exhaust, exhaustion and tuberculosis, he died uh, on July 10th, 1959, at the age of 31. I want to read just a couple of other dialogues. One is, again, this idea of the asceticism of joy. Jesus says to Marcel, As for you, my little friend, accept suffering cheerfully, just as much as when I am absent as when I shower you with my consolations. It is in remaining always the same that you will prove to me your love. It is in remaining stable in your love for me, whether in sadness or in joy, that you prove that you really love me. Marcel responded to him saying, A moment ago I asked myself, why was I so sad? I believe that you were absent again, but I did not cry. He actually cried much throughout his life. I smiled, but sometimes my smile was accompanied by tears. Again, be joyful, never give in to sadness, the Lord says. Even if you feel a little sad, do not show it, since it, imposing this sacrifice on yourself, you will please me a lot. So just like the nun who said, we work, we pray, and we smile, Jesus is saying, even if you're sad, don't show your sadness. When you're around other people, remain happy, remain joyful. In doing this as a sacrifice, it pleases me very much. One of my favorite stories, I think Father Andrew will appreciate this one, is about bananas. This gives you a sense of the simplicity of Marcel, but also the beauty of the intimacy that Christ has with each one of us. Remember that in, in the beginning I said, the gospel today is about not only rejoicing in, 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 in our, the time of sadness, if you love me, you would rejoice, but also about Christ saying, if the Father and I are one, now also you and I are one and you are one with God. And look how intimately Jesus is with each of us in this simple story. Marcel said, yesterday, during the meal, I asked Jesus this question. Jesus, did you ever eat bananas? He replied with a laugh, Marcel, I didn't come down to earth to eat. But then responding to my wish, he added in a more polite tone, I have never eaten bananas and there are still many things that you eat that I have not eaten. However, now when you eat something, it is like I'm eating it myself since we are one. When I heard Jesus speak like that, I was very happy and I ate two bananas. <laughs> so he says, I didn't eat bananas. And actually, I, after reading this some years ago, I went and researched. Bananas were not food in, in, in Palestine in, in those centuries. Bananas only became food much later in other parts of the world first. So in fact, Jesus never ate bananas. But Marcel ate two, one for him and one for Jesus. Another time, Marcel was being ill-treated by one of his brothers. His name was Brother Mark. 
So Marcel complained to Jesus in their conversation. He said, Jesus, why does Brother Mark behave so harshly towards me? Do not forget that I can place the fault at your feet since it is you who lives in Brother Mark. See, Marcel is picking up. If you and I are one, then you are also one with Brother Mark, and therefore the blame is also on you if Brother Mark is treating me harshly. It is you who allows him to make me suffer. Marcel continues, This morning I asked Brother Mark to mend my sandals, but he answered me very harshly, and that hurt me a lot. He was very sensitive. Jesus responds saying, Even if you were not pleased, you should nevertheless appear to be pleased. Remember that you are but one with me as I am one with you. So therefore, when Brother Mark speaks harshly to you, it is I who must put up with it since you are one with me. Checkmate, right? So why, the, why, their concern, why concern yourself with something that concerns me? Marcel responds, Jesus, you are only taking Brother Mark's side. I'm not speaking to you anymore. Jesus responds, but no, it is not Brother Mark's side that I take, but really your side. I'm telling you not to be sad with Brother Mark's abruptness because this brother is not your business, but my business. The dialogues are full of such tenderness and, um, and even humor. The final quote I want to read is um, the last letter, or one of the last letters written in 1955 after his arrest to... Um, and he says this, In prison, nothing can take away from me the arm of love. No affliction is capable of wiping away the affectionate smile that I allow to appear habitually on my wasted face. And for whom is the caress of my smile if it is not for Jesus the Beloved? As for me today, I am no more than a breathing corpse. I am very weak and I am not at the end of my moral troubles. The chalice of bitterness is still full. And there are still many miseries that I cannot even measure. However, love remains, and with love, a heroic will. I am a victim of love, and love is all my happiness, an indescribable happiness. If you love me, you would rejoice. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Then he was placed in the tomb according to the prophetic voices.